I want to take you back into Mark's gospel, and um, we're going to be looking at chapter 6, and I want to read to you a much longer passage today, uh, which actually is framed as one story that has a, he takes a little bit of a diversion in the middle where he's talking about John the Baptist's death, as we'll see. So we're going to read Mark 6 from verse 7, right the way through to verse 32. And I encourage you to open a Bible. It's page 1481 in the church Bibles, if you've managed to grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to keep one. So feel free to grab one from the table, take it home with you, make it your own. Um, And I want to read this lengthy passage. So let's get our heads and hearts into this and trust that God's going to speak to us. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah, the prophet who died centuries before. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. And he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going And they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. 
Let me pray. Father, we ask that as your word has spoken to countless people through the ages, that your spirit will give life to bring it alive to us today. That our hearts, minds, lives will be changed. That our priorities will line up increasingly to what you wish for us. That your will will be everything. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to talk to you today about the reality of the Christian life as being a missionary life. Of being on mission with and for Jesus. And I understand this to be one of the greatest, most weighty privileges of what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. What it means to come into um, a disciple relationship in which he is the master and we are wanting to learn from and imitate and walk in obedience to him. Now immediately when we talk about a subject like mission, I'm conscious that well, some of you are not Christian. And so much of this will feel foreign to you. But I want to invite you, as it were, to, to press your face up against the glass and understand the dignity and beauty of what Christ calls you to when he, 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 he bids you to come and be his follower. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for years, and, and this gives life to your Christian life. You are utterly energized by the idea that Christ has entrusted you as being somebody who's carrying out his mission in the world. And we're privileged to have people in our church whose lives are lit up by this reality. But I also know that for a lot of you, that is it's less the case, right? For a lot of us, it feels more like we've disqualified ourselves from mission, perhaps on account of lifestyle issues. You know that there's an inconsistency between the, a public profession of faith in Jesus and the way that you're living in your day-to-day life. And uh, the Lord would want you to, to become aware and awake to that reality. For many others, there's fear. I know that it's a scary thing, isn't it, being entrusted with this. And uh, it's, it's striking to me that the early Christians prayed for boldness much more than they prayed for people to believe in Jesus. They prayed that rather God would strengthen them to, to not have fear because they just felt afraid. And uh, that might be what you live with, the reality you live with. So we're thinking about mission and the reality of what it means to be entrusted by Christ to further his purposes in his kingdom in the world. And I want to deal honestly with this from the perspective of the cost of discipleship. The challenge of this. Because we're caught between two opposing realities. On the one hand, we recognize that this is the greatest privilege that Christ calls us out of obscurity and chasing our tails and trying to find meaning in life to suddenly being entrusted as being his emissaries. You think about these men whom Jesus was speaking to on this occasion when he sent them out two by two. These guys had come from nowhere, from total obscurity. We would never have heard of them were it not for the fact that Jesus plucked them out of that obscurity from lives as fishermen and and, uh, political uh, activists and this kind of thing to becoming the apostles of Jesus Christ, whose names had now lived through the ages. A great privilege, isn't it? At the same time, we're also aware that, we, um, that there, is a, there is a sense of impending and imposing danger, even as Jesus sends them out to go and do this stuff. And uh, this is something Jesus is really clear about. 
He's clear in this passage when he sends out his disciples two by two. He, he, he prepares them in advance when he tells them that there's going to be places that don't receive you. And this is what you should do when you go somewhere and they don't want to have, they don't want to listen to a thing that you're saying. This is what you should do. He puts it a little bit more starkly and vividly elsewhere. In Matthew's gospel, he says to his disciples, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You think this is just the reality of the modern age that um, the Christian faith is increasingly marginalized and scoffed at and mocked. But actually, it was true right from the beginning. Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise, he says. He says, beware of men, for they'll deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. That has happened all the way through the history of the Christian church. I wonder if you're familiar with the great heroes who've gone before us as Christians. We are only here because of the sacrifices of generation after generation of men and women who are willing to endure this kind of thing that the gospel would live. He says, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. That grates with us because I don't think there's a person among us who isn't at some level a people pleaser. We want to be liked, don't we? That's built deeply into us. And Jesus says, hey, this is a reality. So while it's an enormous privilege, we're also conscious that when Jesus calls and commissions us to be on mission with him, he's sending us into something very difficult by definition. And I want us to explore that reality. And the reason why this is so vital, why it's such an imperative for you, why it's worth you sitting here and being provoked and exhorted and reminded of this great responsibility and this great privilege, is because Jesus put this at the heart of what it means to be one of his followers. Do you remember how he said, you're the salt of the earth in Matthew 5? If salt has lost its saltiness, it's not good for anything, he said, except to be thrown out and trampled. You are the salt of the earth, he says. He says, you're the light of the world. He says, a city on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do you light a lamp and put it under a bowl, but rather you put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. In other words, part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is to be so distinctive. To be a tool in Christ's hands that he would use you to further his purposes in this world. So I want us to explore this theme of mission and I want to do so by giving you five lenses, five angles and what's necessary for mission that comes through in these these stories that Marcus told us. Here's the first. Mission requires consecration. I love this word consecration. It just means to be set apart for a specific purpose, to be consecrated, made holy, distinct for a purpose. Mission requires consecration. Now, the reason why I stress this is that long before the apostles were sent out in this way, as they are here in Mark 6, and this is the first time they're sent out to be, to be missionaries, long before this, Christ has called them to him. The call always precedes the action of mission. The summons precedes going. And you actually see this even in this passage right at the start when it says, he called the 12. Or it can be translated, he summoned the 12. And it's a beautiful word. It's a word that's used in, Act, in the book of Acts to speak of um, 
what it actually means to become a Christian. In, in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit, he says that this, is, this promise of the Holy Spirit is for you and for your children, from everyone whom the Lord has called, has summoned to himself. So it's right at the, the heart of what it means to be a Christian, is that you are a person who has been plucked out and summoned by name to Jesus. Do you live with that sense of that individual privilege and call that you've been called by name? But it also speaks of the vocation, this word. It's used a couple other times in the book of Acts about the missionary journeys of Paul and Barnabas. I'll just give you one example. At the beginning of Acts 13, the first missionary journey, it's interesting how this word occurs. Uh, the first time in, in Mark when these missionaries are sent out and the first time in Acts when the first missionaries go out. And it goes like this. It says, set apart for me. This is the Holy Spirit speaking. He says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, the reason why I'm stressing this idea of, of consecration and calling to Jesus is that I don't think you can do anything for Jesus unless, you've been, unless you first belong to him. You look at the life of John the Baptist, whom we're going to talk a bit more about in a moment. John's birth is talked about in the beginning of Luke's gospel. And uh, you remember how the angel spoke to his dad in the temple and told him, uh, told Zechariah that he was going to have a son. They, they, they'd been childless to this point. But he says, he, he says right from the start, this, this little boy is going to be called summoned in order to do the will of God. And it's put like this, just in one of the verses in Luke 1. It says, He will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. In other words, before John became this extraordinary, well-changing preacher, long before that, God had put his finger on that boy's life and said, He's going to be devoted to me. And it's interesting the way that that devotion be expressed, that he was devoted by not drinking wine. In other words, he was, um, he was a Nazarite even before he was born. A Nazarite was someone who voluntarily took a vow to be consecrated to God. But John the Baptist had no choice about the matter. But God said, he's going to be a Nazarite. He's going to be so consecrated, called to me, that I can use him in my purposes. You get the same... Stress in the life of another man who occurs in the Old Testament called Jeremiah. Right at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah is a difficult read, I'll grant you. Because most of it is this man expressing the word of God to a wayward wayward nation. Being a prophet, speaking hard truths to people who do not want to listen. So how do you get a guy to be that bold and that distinct that he stands out from everyone around him. And it says, this is how the book of Jeremiah begins. This is, God speaks to him. It says, before I formed you in the womb. It was before your cells multiplied and you took shape to be the person that you became. He says, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Long before God sends any one of us out, he calls us to himself to be consecrated to him. You ask, is that, just, is that just a special thing for special people like Jeremiah and John the Baptist and Jesus? And the answer is a kind of a yes and no. Yes, there's a sense in which there are certain individuals, even in our day and age, alive with us, who are called in very unique and special ways to do great things for God. I, I grant that. But 
In the New Testament, there's not a person among them who doesn't feel the reality of having been called, of being extracted, as it were, from the world in order to belong to God so they could serve him with their whole hearts. This is who you are, friends. There's an imperative that goes with that because part of what it means to be consecrated is that your life now is holy to God. You're not here for yourself, your own agenda. You're here for Jesus. Mission requires consecration. Can you say that your life belongs to God? Can you say that you're listening attentively to obey what he wants you to do? Here's the second thing. Mission then requires movement. When Jesus called them, it says he called the twelve and began to send them out. So he called them to himself. And then there's this word that occurs here, which is apostelling. And you know the, you've heard the word because of the name apostle. It means to be sent. These guys are sent ones, which is right at the heart of their identity and what it means to serve Jesus. They were named people who were on the move for Christ. It's right at the heart of their name. And in that, we get a picture of the fact that the mission of God is not accomplished apart from movement in our lives, in your life. Now, I want you to see this, even just from the perspective of Jesus coming into the world. Jesus was at the right hand of the Father, the Bible tells us. And in John 1, he tells us that he came and took on flesh. Eugene Peterson says that he, in his translation, he moved into the neighborhood. There is an intentionality, a deliberate sense in which Christ comes towards us because the mission of God would not be accomplished otherwise. And friends, have you ever thought of your life as being on the move in that sense. A, a momentum, an energy, a drive that comes from the commands of Christ that, that are pushing you forward into the, the purposes he has for you. Mission is movement. And I'm putting weight on this point because I think a lot of Christians get this stuff the, the wrong way around entirely. We think about our lives in terms of we, we have a number of things we want to do with our lives. We, we want to get on with our lives and fulfill our own desires, ambitions, um, you know, get married, potentially have children, get a jo- good job that fulfills us. And then the mission of God is an add-on to that, that sense of living for ourselves. And if God uses us, wonderful. If he doesn't, okay, but there's a passivity about it. But I think when you, when you look at the lives of the believers in the New Testament, that whole picture is turned upside down in which Movement and mission come first, and the rest fits in around that. So let me just try and explain to you what I mean. Why did you move to London? Why did you choose the university you're in, choose the job that you're in, the place where you live? I think for many of us, we chose those things based on factors that are not irrelevant, but maybe which have become too important around a sense of self-fulfillment or desire, these kinds of things. And then much further down the line, we then think about as a secondary or even tertiary decision, we think about the church we're going to belong to and how we can serve God in the context which we've already decided to be in. And actually, I think, in a a way, I think Christians have got to look at this the exact other way around. 
that serving the Lord with your whole life and energy comes first and the other parts of your life fit around that. Not in competition to, but in perfect complementarity to because God is sovereign over the whole of your existence. There's a family that were part of our church who inspired me on this um, and they've recently gone overseas, but their whole life was geared towards mission. So that when they first joined us, they said, hey, we're here for a season because ultimately we want to go and be missionaries in this other part of the world. And London is our stepping stone for getting there. And the husband had landed an extraordinary job at the top tech company in the world here in London, in the offices in London. And a job which would potentially get them to where they wanted to go and did in fact get them where they wanted to go. But the, the brilliant job and the, 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 the lavish, um, well, the, the generous salary and all those kinds of things that came with that were secondary in their decision-making process to the ultimate primary thing that they knew they were here to serve God. And that they were going places with God. They were on movement with God. Many of you, I know, are doing this already. There's folk in our church who have paid the price, in a sense, to put, put the reality of mission and of intentionality and of movement, of being here and of putting down roots in the city as their first and primary call. And then they, tried to, they sought to build lives around that fact. I love that. It's so inspiring when we see that. I want to challenge you. Is that the way you think about why you're here? Are you moving with Jesus? Are you, do you have a, a sense of being sent by him in, your, in the great picture of your life and in the day-to-day of your momentary existence? To live like that requires enormous faith. And it's interesting the way that Jesus instructs these men to go about the mission, how he says, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money, and your belts to wear sandals, not put on two tunics, etc., And the reason why he's saying all these things, he's saying, listen, I don't want you to go out thinking about your provision as the first thing that's on your mind and then being limited by what we can or cannot accomplish based on whether we have the resources to do it. He says, rather, go in faith and God will provide what you need as and when you find yourself in new places. In other words, movement comes first and then the rest follows. Mission requires consecration. It also requires a sense of movement. And I want to ask you again, are you conscious that your life is moving in step with the calling and purposes of the Holy Spirit in and through you? Are you listening? Do you have that sense of being sent by God? Imagine what dignity that brings to your day-to-day, even the normal stuff that you're doing to God's glory when you know you're here at his bidding, at his command. Here's a third thing. Mission requires authority. It requires authority. Jesus said at the end of Matthew's gospel that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. And it's interesting you see that exact same dynamic here. Jesus, the sovereign Lord, it says he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He's conscious of his own lordship. And so when he sends them out, he never sends without conferring upon his people, his servants, his disciples, the authority that comes from him to do the things that they're called to do. Now, um, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul talks about this as being an ambassador 
for Jesus. Let me read you a verse in 2 Corinthians 5. Because I think it's a beautiful picture, this picture of what it means to be an ambassador. He puts it like this. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why is an ambassador such a brilliant image for what we're talking about here? Because an ambassador, an ambassador is the voice of a nation. If two nations are in a standoff and might potentially go to war, the ambassador will carry the full authority to speak the mind and will of his entire nation to the opposing nation. They're trusted with that weight of authority. They'll bring the terms to negotiate a diplomatic de-escalation or to bring about a friendship between nations. And in a sense, not, not in a sense, in reality, that is exactly the calling and weight and authority that God puts on his people in the world because we represent a kingdom, a nation, it says in 1 Peter, a people. We represent a king. We represent his rule. We represent his claim upon the world. And as we, as we go on mission, we are carrying with us, with our lives and with our voices, the full authority of Jesus Christ. That changes the way you think and the way you speak. We're not offering people suggestions. There's a sense in which we're saying these are the terms. That's why Paul puts it like this, that we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Saying, I'm presenting to the world the will of Jesus. He's coming with peace terms. He gives you that authority. That's an awesome and sobering privilege. I think this is coming through a little bit, by the way, in the way Jesus speaks to his disciples here. When he prepares them for rejection, and he says, if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. In other words, how people respond to you as my sent ones is how they respond to me And your testimony against them will carry weight with me. There's a sense of authority not only to present the gospel, but also then to expose the ones who who don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. And friends, where this comes home for us is in, listen, what does this mean for you on a day-to-day basis if you carry the authority of Christ wherever you go? It means that you represent him all of the time wherever you are. You represent Jesus. In a sense, you're an extension of his very presence all of the time, wherever you are, to whomever you speak. That is both terrifying and exhilarating. Doesn't that shape and form everything about the way we should conduct ourselves? Mission requires this authority. Consecration, movement, authority. Here's a, th- a, a fourth thing. Mission requires courage. I'm so glad to hear Luke praying about this theme in the, the time of worship. Why is courage needed? Why is courage needed? Why did I start by talking about the fear that's associated with being on mission with Jesus? It, it's not hard to find the answer to that. And the answer is simple. Because the gospel is offensive. 
There's a lot of people in our day and age, Christians or, or, or so-called Christians, who, who so want to downplay the offense of the message that we carry, that they bleed it of any power. A couple of weeks ago, a book was released by a man uh, who's a prominent pastor in our nation. And the book is basically trying to make the case that we've misunderstood Paul. When we believe that people are only saved by faith in Jesus, he says, no, that's not what Paul taught at all. Paul didn't think faith was necessary. God's grace is, uh, is a blanket grace that's offered irrespective of whether you believe in Jesus or not. And Paul didn't believe in judgment. He just, he just came to announce the grace of God to the world. And it doesn't matter how people respond. God, God's grace just covers it all. There's no judgment. There's no exclusion. Now, I get a bit emotional about these things, but I, um, I was think- I, I mean, I was reading the book and I was thinking to myself, it's extraordinary, isn't it, how Paul's life as he traveled on his missionary journeys was a story of being beaten, of being stoned, of being thrown out of cities everywhere he went. And I asked myself the question, if all he was preaching was a message of inclusion and radical grace irrespective of how you respond. Why on earth were people offended with him? It makes no sense, doesn't it? Why did they reject Jesus himself? Why was he crucified? I'll tell you why. Because the gospel that we believe is a confrontational message. It's inherently offensive. Paul actually talks about this at length in one of his letters. It's offensive on at least three levels. It's offensive because it confronts sin. When the apostles were preaching, it says they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, which means turn away from your, from your sinful lifestyle and, and obey Jesus. It confronts sin. And the problem with sin is that we don't want to let go of it. We do not want to surrender our lives to Jesus. Not naturally speaking. When you tell people that they are not right with God, that is, that is offensive at its heart, right? It's also offensive because there's an exclusivity about this. The reason why Jesus sent his disciples into the world to represent him was because he believed that all men needed to, to surrender to his authority and lordship. That there is no other way to God but through Jesus, the Savior who died for you. And of course, living in a pluralistic world in which there is a melting pot of worldviews and beliefs and all these kinds of things, to claim that there is only one Savior is inherently offensive. It goes against the spirit of the age. It goes against the spirit of every age. Another aspect of this offense is that it's threatening to people's autonomy. We live in the age that has exalted freedom above every other ethic and freedom of a particular kind. It's not freedom as the Bible defines it, but it's the freedom of the individual to express themselves in whatever way they want, to live whatever kind of life they want. It's actually ultimately, the Bible says, results in slavery to your desires. And just yesterday, we had over a million people marching in the name of this ethic. This is what a powerful ethic this has become in our day and age. 
the ethic of expressive individualism. Accept me for who I am. The Bible says no. To follow Jesus, you have to die to who you are and lay your life on the altar. Now, friends, maybe it's just me, but I think that requires an element of courage to be able to speak about that. And in fact, it's becoming increasingly hostile in the day and age in which we live to preach a message like the one the apostles were preaching, that they went about telling people that they should repent. Now, this is why, and this is where we're going to get to John the Baptist. It's on this point, I think, this is why Mark includes a story about John's death here. He could have put it in a number of places in his gospel, but he puts it here. And it's, it's, uh, it's sort of uh, bookended by Jesus sending out the apostles and the apostles returning to Jesus. And in that whole theme, he tells a story about John for this reason. Because he wants the apostles, he wants us as those reading about the mission of Jesus to see John as an example of the kind of courage and sacrifice necessary to fulfill Jesus' mission in the world. Let's recap the story. Herod was a kind of puppet king. A kind of nominally religious man, but not really a devout Jew. And apparently ruling the Jews. And here he is. He's married to a woman called Herodias. And uh, she happens to be not only his brother's wife. I don't know how that marriage broke down, but she'd been married to his brother Philip, and now Herod's married to her. He's, she's also Herod's niece, because one of his other brothers, it was her, his daughter. So the level of incest and mess that's going on in this family obviously flew in the face of all the ethics and of the law of God and morality. And so John the Baptist, being a preacher, a prophet to the nation, does not believe, as is often touted in our day and age, that what happens in private has nothing to do with your public uh, persona and rule and authority. He doesn't believe that at all. He says this speaks right to the heart of who this man is. And so he challenged him, called him out. He ended up on the wrong side of, of the wife, Herodias. She and makes sure that he's put in, in the dungeon And then when he's there, she finds a trick in order to get him killed. The daughter, Salome, dances a sexual explicit dance at a party. Herod's so overcome with lust and dizzy with the excitement of what's going on, he he promises her rashly he'll give her anything she wants. And she goes and asks her mom, and her mom says, get me the head of John the Baptist. And so he does. Now... The main thing I'm trying to get across to you, of course, is the point of courage here. I just want to take a little aside here and just think about Herod for a second. Because this, Herod is a picture of how you can hear this gospel. And some of you are not Christians. And some of you are Christians, but you're, you're, you're wrestling between two worlds and two realities and two sets of desires. I want you to think about how Herod reacts to John's preaching. John's telling him, You must not live this way. You must obey God. And Mark tells us things like this. He tells us in verse 20 uh, that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. It's interesting, isn't it, how conflicted he was. He actually keeps John safe, even though John's the one who's constantly exposing him for his wicked lifestyle. He says, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed. I'll say 
and yet he heard him gladly. So he's torn. On the one hand, he loves John. He loves this courageous model of, of, of difference to everyone around him. This preacher who walks around in the wilderness wearing camel's skin and, 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 and eating locusts. And he loves that. He, he finds him a thrilling preacher to listen to. But he's also, he says, he, he's greatly perplexed. When he hears what John's saying, he goes away and, and there's, a, there's a kind of confusion and a division of heart. He doesn't know what to do. It gets even more intense for him because when Salome asks for John's head, Mark uses a really interesting word to talk about the conflict of heart that's taking place in Herod's, in Herod's mind. It says, the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he beheaded John. The word exceedingly sorry only occurs one other time in the New Testament. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is wrestling with the torment of what he's about to do. And it shows you the degree of emotional pain that Herod is experiencing in that moment. That he's exceedingly sorry about this need to behead John. And I stress this for you, friends, because... I've seen this. I've seen this in people who are not Christians. I've seen this in people who, who do have a relationship with Jesus. Where such a conflict of heart can be brought about that you are torn radically at the deepest part of you between two ways. Will you obey Jesus and the summons to lay your life down for him? Or will you walk away and do your own thing and maintain your auton- autonomy or Make a bid for autonomy. Herod is ripped apart. There's a wonderful quote that contrasts the righteousness of John by, against the, the life of Herod that I read in one of the commentators. He put here, John the Baptist and Herod Antipas met in perfect antithesis. In other words, they're opposites. John was austere and simple. Herod was flamboyant and ornate. John was righteous. Herod was a debauchee. John was a man of immense moral courage. Herod was a man who lived in a spineless relativity. John was a man who kept his conscience and lost his head. Herod was a man who took John's head and lost his own conscience. What you see is Herod makes the wrong decision. He only appears one more time in the Bible, and it's at the trial of Jesus. And such a transition has happened in his life from the point where he's torn between two options when John preaches to when he puts Jesus on trial. That when Jesus is on trial, all he can do is mock Jesus. And Jesus actually doesn't answer a single one of his questions. He doesn't even utter a word to Herod. Which I think is a picture exactly of what happens in the life of the person who hears the provocation of the Holy Spirit. You need to give your life to Jesus and walk away from your sin. But silences the voice as Herod did by beheading the, the mouthpiece. And then he ends up being unable to hear God speak at all. Jesus won't even say a word to him at that point. Because having already shut down his opportunity for grace, he puts himself on the side of judgment. It's sobering, isn't it? It may be the case that you're caught in that battle right now. I know that's a raging battle for some. Will you walk 
the way Jesus wants you to or will you maintain your autonomy? Anyway, coming back to this point. Jesus, the reason Mark tells us this story is because he wants you to understand that to be on mission with Jesus requires immense moral courage, which can only really be given to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. As I said at the start, the Holy Spirit is poured on God's people and then they are filled with boldness to speak his word. Do you need that courage? Here's my last point. Mission requires rest. When we jump to the very end of the story, uh, the apostles returned to Jesus. I want to read to you the last verses that we read. It says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they'd done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. What's this rest about? Partly it's just a physical thing. They were unable to eat because they were working so hard for Jesus. And I think there's instruction in that, in the sense that sometimes Christ calls you to serve him in a way that does require the denial of self. And we're not to sink into self-pity at that point. Some of you think, I've been serving Jesus so hard. Don't begrudge it. He's worthy. But the deeper, I think, and more important point is that Jesus is teaching us about the importance of rest for spiritual rejuvenation in walking in obedience to him. Let me ask you, how did Jesus himself sustain a faithful ministry when he encountered rejection and depletion of energy from place to place as he traveled preaching? The answer is given us right at the beginning of Mark's gospel. And it tells us that after a full day of ministry, he got up early in the morning while it was still dark, departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. The son of God needed to get alone with the father in order to be rejuvenated, in order to be refreshed, that he could then go back into service and mission. And when Jesus sends out his own apostles and they go and they're busy and they're working hard, he establishes for them that same pattern. They return, they've met with great success on their first missionary journey. And then he says, come away to a desolate place, an empty place, a place of absolute solitude. Why? I think it has to do with maintaining a heavenly perspective on what's important to God in your life. What you pay attention to very often fills your mind and heart, doesn't it? We're in the craziness of sports season at the moment. And we don't have a a TV license, but years ago I used to watch Wimbledon in this time. And I have no interest in tennis. But it's amazing that by devoting attention to it, you get more and more sucked up into this thing like it's something important. Of course, it's not important. It's two guys knocking a, a ball over a net, which you know, has no importance to it, apart from less than, rec- rest and, less than recreation, rest and recreation. But amazing how your whole emotional life can be controlled by this. The things you pay attention to control your outlook, don't they? I have... Um, the, the one social media outlet which I enjoy is Twitter, because you they can find out all kinds of stuff that's going on in the world through that. Um, but if I spend too much time on Twitter, I begin to think that the world is going crazy, honestly, because it is the most hostile, 
of social media platforms. It's all about people being opposed to other people. And the pylons is like a thousand people troll this one person and a thousand people troll their opponents. And it's just, it's like a massive like mosh pit, I tell you. And, but if I spend too much time on that, it controls my outlook. I begin to feel a bit despairing about the world. Like things are going so mental, so crazy. And you forget that actually most people are just getting on with their lives doing pretty normal things most of the time. Now, what I'm trying to stress for you is that where you devote your attention actually begins to control your outlook on life. And let's state this negatively before we put it positively. I think a lot of Christians feel no urgency around the mandate to serve God in the world because you have no sustained relationship with the Lord. If you never find yourself in a place of a desolate place, alone with the Father, allowing your heart to be shaped by His will, then of course you never receive His priorities for why you're here and what you're here to do. The flip side's also true, though, of course. Jesus modeled and taught us how to maintain a sense of reality. The whole of the world is, 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 is denying reality, but reality is that God made us and that he has a claim on us. And we can only live with that sense of reality and urgency and of the time that's important to be given to God when we are living with rest in God's presence. And I think more specifically, when our hearts are consumed with worship for the Lord Jesus Christ, he called the apostles to be with him in that desolate place. He wanted to be their first love. Even as they're experiencing, often they would experience rejection from the world around them. They could, hold, they, they could cope with that if Jesus was first in their lives. And as they witness him later, crucified for them, raised from the dead for them, as they witness the sacrifice Christ would make on behalf of the world which he loves, which he is passionate to be reconciled with. They could only sustain that kind of priority and focus on the mission that he called them to through adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ, reflection on their own debt, that he died for my sin, that he has made me righteous, that he has filled me with his Holy Spirit, that he has dignified me with a commission and a call to serve him with my life. Why don't we bow our heads and pray? It's very likely, as we covered quite a lot of terrain, it's very likely that um, an aspect or a couple of aspects of what we've been talking about has resonated with you in your heart, be it the need to be consecrated to God, to have, to, to, that your life will be devoted to him before you live for him, be it the need to obey him through movement, or represent him as an ambassador, or be more courageous and put to death the fears in your life. Or find a way to rest in him. As we bow our heads in preparation to, to come back to Christ in communion. I want to encourage you to respond to Jesus. It may be the case you need to offer your life to him afresh. Say, Lord, I know that I belong to you. My eating of the bread and the wine is a statement that I now belong to you because you purchased me by your body and by your blood. Maybe the case that you need to repent of a specific sin in your life. 
maybe that you just want to crawl out. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, Lord. I don't feel bold. I feel terrified about serving you. Fill me with your Spirit. Change my outlook. Whatever it is you need to say, let's just have a moment of quiet to talk to the Lord. Amen?